Okay, good morning, everybody. Nice of you to brave the fog and the frost. It didn't look like that when I got up this morning and came over here. So I came here, I was doing my work, got the service recorded for the podcast, and then went out to change the baptismal font, water, and it was a Christmas miracle. <laughs> Hymn 344, stanzas one through three. On Jordan's bank the Baptist cry announces that the Lord is nigh. Awake and hearken, for he brings glad tidings of the King of Kings. Then cleansed be every life from sin, make straight the way for God within, and let us all our hearts prepare for Christ to come and enter there. We hail thee as our Saviour, Lord, our refuge and our great reward. Without thy grace we waste away like flowers that wither and decay. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we implore you to hear our prayers and to lighten the darkness of our hearts by your gracious visitation. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Verse of the week, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Let's speak this together. You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Okay. Um, again, the language is so important. You were washed. What... Is that? <coughs> Baptism? Well, yeah, but I mean, sorry, that was, I asked a bad question. Uh, is that active or is that passive? passive? It is passive. You were washed, which means it is external. You did not wash yourself. This has kind of been the refrain the last two weeks. You didn't wash yourself. You were washed. Somebody else did it to you. What else? You were sanctified. And you were justified. We're going to do these in reverse order. What, is it, what does it mean to be justified? Made right. Pardon me? Made right. 
What is that? Okay. Made right with God. Yes. Can you say it? What, what does it mean to be made right? right? Was, I, was I not right with God before? Forgiven. Forgiven. Yes. Yes. So justification is uh, to be forgiven. Again, even that definition is in the passive. Be forgiven. Uh, somebody has to forgive you. It's not that you, you don't get to forgive yourself. You don't get to pardon yourself. Okay? You were justified, which is being forgiven. Sanctification. If justification is being forgiven, sanctification is, what would you think? Let me ask this. How long does sanctification last? Forever. For your whole life. It's an ongoing thing. Is justification an ongoing thing? Or is that something that happens. Yes, how you live. Sanctification is how you live. So I'll get to this, what this means in the context here in just a second, but I want you to understand basically what the words are. Justification especially, you would not believe how many Lutherans talk about rah-rah justification, and then you ask them, what is justification? And they say, I don't know what it is, but I sure can't tell you what it isn't. And then you think, isn't that, isn't justification, according to the Lutheran Church, the doctrine on which the entire church stands and falls? It would be nice if we actually knew what it was. So justification is being forgiven. And in, in that sense, the forgiveness that comes through the working of Christ Sanctification is to be living as somebody who is forgiven. What does it look like when you live forgiven? Well, I can think of a parable of Jesus that's a really good example. When the unforgiving servant uh, goes and has his debt wiped out by the master, that's being forgiven and then goes out and refuses to do the same. You know, he has a 10 billion, 10 trillion dollar, whatever, um, an infinite sum wiped clean, and he shakes down his fellow servant for five bucks for the McDonald's cheeseburger he bought him two weeks ago. That's the, that's the comparison. An infinite sum versus chump change. And he refuses to forgive the chump change, that's the whole point. You're not living as somebody is, who is forgiven, you're living like the same old slob that you were before you were forgiven. So living forgiven is living differently. Now, that you were sanctified, because this is something that is now, in this context, used in the passive, it's still related to justification, you are forgiven, and then being forgiven you are set apart as holy. So you can, always, you can always tell or have a good guess as what words mean based on what the, the roots are. This is why it's helpful if you know a hint of Latin and a hint of Greek, things like 
Logos, you know what Logos is. That's just the word. Jesus is the Logos, the word. But then you look at something like Theology, Logos, Theo, God, Logos, word or study. Theology is the study of God. You can do that without knowing what the definition is just because you know what the parts are. Sanctified, right here you already know because where do you see sanct? Think of a place where you see or hear or sing sanct. Sanctus, holy, holy, holy. Sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. So sanct, holy. You're holified is what that is. You're holified. You're forgiven and then you're holified, which is now you're not the same as the other rabble of unforgiven and unholy. You are forgiven and then moved from the unholy to the holy. Now you're set aside from everybody else because you are now holy and in being set aside to be holy, then you also live the sanctified life. You live differently because you've been set apart. Now, how does all of this happen? How are you washed? How are you sanctified? How are you justified? In the name. Why is the name important? Why isn't it just by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why is it the name? What's the importance of a name? In the beginning, it's a word. It not only identifies you, it is you. Who are you? If I ask you, who are you? I don't ask you, what, who, who do you identify as? Who knows in this culture? Yeah, we are having a problem with that. We are having a problem with that. No, I, don't, I don't ask you, I don't, I don't care what you identify as, I want to know who you are. And you say, I am, I am Dennis Olentalen, that is who I am. That's, that's why um, the whole deal, by the way, with the baptismal liturgy, there's a baptism this morning, which is why I'm thinking of it. There's the whole part where it says, how are you named? Well, that's because you actually didn't used to get your name until you were baptized. Now you, you can hardly get away with that because everybody has Snapchat and texting and the hospital wants to keep a record. So everybody, you have to know the name ahead of time. So it doesn't really work as well. But the way it was, was when you went to be baptized, they would say, how are you named? And then you would say, this is how I am named. And that was your name given to you at baptism. Your identity was all rooted in that. And now you have a name. Your name is your identity, but if it is your identity, or excuse me, it is who you are. And if your name is who you are, it means that anybody else who has your name has you. And there is power in having the name. The name of Jesus is not just something that we say, oh yeah, he was called this. When you have the name of Jesus, you actually have power. And where the name of Jesus is, there Jesus himself is. That's why the Lord tells Solomon when he dedicates the temple, I will put my name on this temple and I will dwell here and you know that I will dwell here and will be here because my name is there. 
So we put the name of Jesus on you. We use the name of Jesus. I make, this is, by the way, when I do this, this is the name of Jesus spelled out in Greek letters with a hand. So when I'm holding this up to you, I'm putting the actual name of Jesus on you. It's all about the name of Jesus. The name of the Lord Jesus. Now, here's the other question. Isn't Jesus his name? The name of the Lord Jesus. Isn't that redundant? What is the name of the Lord Jesus? Pardon me? Jesus. No. Pardon me? Okay, you're getting closer. Who is Yahweh? What is Yahweh? What is that? I don't know. Ex explain it to me. It's God, but God isn't a name. Okay. Yes, yes. Tell me something about him. Well, I'll ask it this way. Tell me something about God, about Yahweh, about I am. What's different about that God than any of the other gods? Only true God. Yes, that's the only true God, but I mean characteristically. Okay, what else? The Lord our righteousness. Okay, yes, yes, yes. You have no idea how close you are. And I don't just want to give it away. I, uh, you're so, so, so close. Yes, Larry? Yes, that's it! That there's three persons in one God. No, what other God is like that? A plurality, a singular plurality. There is one multitude, but the multitude is one. Only the true God is triune. And how do we begin our services? Actually, how do we begin just about everything? And what is the name of the Lord Jesus that you hear when you are washed and justified and sanctified? The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the name of the Lord Jesus. So, by the way, then, when Jesus gives the baptismal formula at the end of Matthew, when he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he says things like, whoever's baptized in my name, and then the, then the apostles go and baptize in the name of Jesus, then you have some folks that then say, well, no, the, 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 the triune name isn't what you're supposed to be baptized into. You're supposed to be baptized into the name of Jesus, which is just Jesus. So we baptize you in the name of Jesus, Amen. But that doesn't do any good. And you can tell from how the apostles actually baptized. And how do we know how the apostles actually baptized? Because they wrote down the instructions of how you were supposed to do it in what is called the Didache. And uh, I'm going to be riding the Didache hobby horse for the rest of the time that I am alive and in this parish. So I hope that you're okay with the broken record there. But the Didache is what the apostles taught and did. And they said, hey, if you want to baptize, you baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What is that name? That's the name of Jesus because Jesus is the triune God made flesh. There isn't a part of Jesus that doesn't have the fullness of the triune God. 
There is nothing that Jesus does that is independent from the other persons of the Trinity. So the name of Jesus is the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are washed with that name. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are justified in that name. I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You are sanctified by that name in the act of forgiveness and in the fact that you live in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And... So it's in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now this is lowercase, but it actually should be capital. Because who is the Spirit of our God? The Holy Spirit. Now this should make you think of uh, what St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, which is actually the catechism for this week. He has therefore washed us... Uh, through, or he has given us a washing of rebirth and renewal through the Holy Spirit. How does Jesus continue to work? Through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. Whose Spirit is the Holy Spirit? Jesus. Jesus' Spirit, yes. That's the thing that, you know, Jesus says, I will send you my Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Why? Because the Word and the Spirit, or the Word and the breath, which is what the Spirit is, the ruach, the breath, they go together. You can't speak a word without having the breath behind it. So when you speak, when the Word of God goes forth and when the Word of God works, it's always with the Spirit. So the Word of God as the person of Jesus is still working in baptism, in the Eucharist, in the words of absolution, in the proclamation of the Gospel, in living the life of faith that follows Christ, through the working of his spirit. Okay, let's speak all this again. You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Okay, how can water do such great things? Certainly not just water, but the Word of God in and with the water does these things, along with the faith which trusts this Word of God in and with the water. For without God's Word, the water is plain water and no baptism. But with the Word of God, it is a baptism, that is, a life-giving water rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Generously, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. There you go. I mean, these two little bits, the, the text of the small catechism and then the text quoted from Titus chapter 3, is this. How does water do such great things? Well, this is one of the things I really love. When you say, what is baptism? Baptism is not just plain water which means, I mean, it is water, 
It's not only water, though. So it's not just plain water. Well, how does water do such great things? You weren't listening. If you're asking, how does water do such great things, then you weren't listening before when we said baptism is not just plain water. So then it comes again. Certainly not just water does these things. Water, what's water going to do? Water is water. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to wash dirt off of you from the outside, but it's not going to get anything inside. It's not going to wash your spirit and your soul. How do you even find what your spirit and your soul are, let alone interact with it by putting water on it? I mean, that's impossible. Tell me if you, tell me if you figure out a way to do it, and I'll make you a millionaire. Um, so not just water does this, but it's the word of God... But is it the word of God all by itself? No. It's the word of God in and with the water. The Lord never does things that are only spirit or only matter. It is the union of the, if you, it's the union of the two, of spirit and matter. If you want to know what the proof of that is, all you have to do is look at the incarnation. Heck, we're in the time of year now where we're looking for that incarnation. We're about to celebrate that incarnation. How do you know that the Lord is not content to, to work with you only materially like an animal or only spiritually like an angel? Well, one, he created you to be the way that you are as spiritual and material, but he also became himself, the God of spirit became himself material. He took on flesh. It's, it's never enough to have one or the other. It must be both. So when the Lord God works with you, it's never just in water, and it's never just in word. It's in the combination. It's never just in bread and wine, and it's never just in the words of, incarnate, or, uh, the words of institution. They have to be together. These things come together, and they are then knit so tightly together that you cannot tell where the one begins and the, and the other ends which is good, they are inseparable, like the, the garment that Jesus wears when, when he is led to be crucified, all woven in one piece without seam. That's what the sacraments are like, material and spiritual. Certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water. And then there's that, that's just the explanation, because without the word of God in the water, it's just plain water, but without the water, it's just the word that is being spoken and not doing it. It has to work through the water. Okay, any questions about the verse or the catechism? Okay, we've got a few shopkeeping things that I want to <coughs> make sure that you are aware of here before we finish up, uh, hopefully, what I, what I want to. This, uh, this day, we have to cut it a little bit early because there is a baptism before or at the beginning of service, but there's, the choir is also singing, so I need time to get the choir warmed up and to get ready and go through stuff with the family before the baptism. So it's a, it's a busy day. So uh, I have to be very honest about time today. Secondly, this is the last Bible class until after Christmas. Next week, during the Sunday school and Bible class hour, is the Sunday school Christmas program. Don't skip that because it isn't Bible class. It's, in essence, 
a small service that the kids, the children are doing. There are hymns to sing, the children are singing, there are readings to hear. It's the word of the Lord. So don't break your routine. Come like you normally would, but come to the sanctuary for that program there. Christmas Day is on a Sunday this year. So the week after then is Christmas Day. We do not have Bible class on Christmas Day. There will not be Bible class again until the Sunday after Christmas. And I don't know what that date is. New Year's That's, Day. Oh, yeah, okay. That's, so New Year's Day. So um, there you go. That's when, when Bible class will be back. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, boy, this is the last Bible class of the year. I didn't think of saying it like that. Oof. Time, by, time goes by way too quickly. Okay, those are the two shopkeeping things. Come next week, even if you don't have a child or a grandchild or a great-grandchild that is participating, come. It's, it's for the whole church, and it's best that the church does all of her things together. Okay. Uh, now, this is what I want to finish today. I want to finish what I was talking about two weeks ago, which was the... Children being punished for the sins of the father. Now, I told you that this is not just a really easy, one-and-done, black-and-white thing. The other thing, and, and what I told you about that, was that it's, there are different layers and different aspects to different facets of this. But I also told you that the one thing that you know is not necessarily the best interpretation of this is to say that what God is going to do is retributive justice. So you do a dumb thing, and then because you did your dumb thing, all of your children are going to be the ones to pay the penalty. So because I use him as an example a lot, if young Gregory Bierman robs the local bank and then comes and confesses, of course, his sins are forgiven, but there are real-world consequences, and so he goes to jail. But then that is to say the Lord looks upon his children and says, your dad robbed the bank, so now you guys get to go to jail, and you get to have your kids in jail, and they get to have their kids in jail, and that'll be all the punishment because of what your daddy did, and only after the third and fourth generation will they be let out. That's not what this is saying at all. In fact, we already looked at some passages in Scripture that directly contradict that. The Lord does not wish for the specific sins of the Father to be visited specifically upon the children. That is not what this means. So what I had mentioned last time was to consider the reality that he is speaking to the children of Israel as a group, that I will visit the sins or in the sins of the fathers upon the children. What happens to Israel? Do the fathers fear, love, and trust in God above all things? No, they do not. They are a cantankerous generation. They're, I mean, they're all cantankerous, really, if you want to think about it. What generation in the history of the world has not been somewhat cantankerous in their own special way? Every single one of them is. That's kind of the point. But you look at Israel and you say, well, 
They wanted the Lord, they cried out to the Lord, so the Lord came, the Lord heard them, the Lord delivered them out of Egypt, and then the first thing that they do is they complain. I mean, they're barely out of Egypt and they're already complaining. Oh no, the Red Sea, Pharaoh's gonna get us, you should have just let us die. It's not like there's been a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire around you the whole time. Where's God? Well, I don't know, open your eyes and look. That's kind of, by the way, that's kind of the Lord's attitude. Read the book of Exodus and read the book of Judges and then tell me that the Lord doesn't have a little bit of snark in him. (laughs) Okay? I'm right here. Open your eyes and pay attention, you dum-dums. So then they cross the Red Sea and they say, oh boy, look at the Lord did, hey, great. Then they start walking and they say, oh, but now we're hungry and there's nothing to eat, there's nothing to drink. So the Lord gives them manna. He gives them bread that rains down from heaven that they don't do anything for. And he says, just make sure that you take enough for one day because I will give you fresh bread every day. And what do they do? No, he won't possibly do that, so I'm going to get enough for the whole week. And the next morning it's rotten. Yeah, and then the next morning it's rotten. Yeah, God always has the last words. <laughs> right, except on Saturday, because you can't go out and gather it on the day of rest. So you get enough for two days in preparation for the Sabbath. Actually, that would have been Friday. So you get, because Saturday was the Sabbath. Uh, so you, you, get, uh, you get enough for your family for those two days, because you don't, the Lord also then provides for you for the Sabbath. Uh, so then they get this bread and they don't do what he tells them. And then they learn their lessons. Oh, okay, 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 we'll just, go out. we'll just go out every day and we'll gather. We'll get our daily bread. And then, then what do they say? We loathe this worthless food. <laughs> we loathe this worthless food. Why? Because we want meat. And the Lord says, okay, you may have meat. So he gives them quails. And then they say, but we're thirsty and there's no water. And he says, okay, here's water to drink. And it just keeps going. Now we're tired of quail. There's only so many ways to fix quail and bread, magic bread from heaven. You can only fix it so many ways. And they just complain and they complain and they turn against the Lord. And then you read stuff like Korah's Rebellion. Now here's a really good example of the Lord not punishing the children. Because, (laughs) do you know, how many of you know about Korah's Rebellion? (coughs) Okay, see, this is not a Sunday school story. Here's what happens. Korah and a few others of the leaders of Israel challenge Moses' and Aaron's authority. And they say, who put the two of you in charge? How come you get to be the pastors? We are all just as capable of doing that as you are. We're going to do it too. And the Lord says, I am the one who did this to them. You didn't elect them. I appointed them. And I put them over you. And I say, we don't care. We're just as good as they are. And then the Lord says, don't do it or you'll be sorry. And they do it. 
and the ground opens up and all of the people who caused the rebellion were swallowed up by the earth and then it closed on them. And then Moses and Aaron basically stood there and said, anybody else have anything to say? (laughs) And then when you read the Psalms, you realize that some of the Psalms are written by the sons of Korah. And they are things like, the Lord is gracious and merciful to us. He does not look upon our sins. Okay? Yes? That's right. I would ba- rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's written by the sons of Korah. That's right. They said, well, we are already taking care of everything. So let me, let me put it this way. It would be like if the altar guild said, well, we're already getting everything set up. We might as well be the ones to conduct the service too. And the Lord says, that's not the way this works. Uh, so, but then the sons of Korah are still faithful. But now here's the thing. So all of this happens in Israel. And then here's another example the fathers turn away from the Lord and the Lord sends fiery serpents among the camp of Israel. So the, the, the children of Israel are harmed because of the fathers of Israel and their sin. Israel is a nation. They do good or they suffer ill as a nation. So then my ultimate driving point is who has to wander around because of infidelity? Everybody, the fathers turned from the Lord and everybody is punished. It's like in the military when one person does something and then the entire company or the entire unit is punished for what the one person did. That's what it is with the nation of Israel. Now, here's the other thing. Another layer here is that God will let you sleep in the bed that you have chosen to make for yourself. We already talked a little bit about this because I I mentioned that there are real-world, real-life consequences so that when you commit a sin or you choose to, to do certain things, excuse me, there is always a ripple effect. Nothing that you do affects only you. Nothing, even the things that you think you do privately, they do not stay there. They all have long-lasting effects that ripple out from the source. So the example that I used before was a father who is not faithful to his children and then repents of that later down the road. But regardless of the fact that he has repented of it, He still suffers for that because his children now no longer want anything to do with him. And his children are harmed by that because now they do not have a father. And they grow up not having a father. 
and they are then adults who have hatred and resentment in their heart for their father. And then there are things that those children do in their lives that perhaps they would not have done if they had had a father or if they had had fatherly wisdom. And then they get into trouble. And then perhaps that is perpetuated. The ripples are long-lasting. There are real-world or natural law consequences for things that happen. Uh, David and Bathsheba is one of the prime examples of this, where you see what David's poor kingly behavior and infidelity then causes as ripples throughout his kingdom, but specifically through his family. Does the house of David know any peace? No, it does not. Not until Jesus. But there is no peace in that family. I mean, you can go back even further and you can just say, Israel is punished because they chose a king instead of a judge. They suffer the consequences of what happens when you have a king. And you can say that David's behavior is just more of the ripples that go even further back than that to when the Lord said, it's not good for you to have a king. And they said, we're going to have one anyway. And he said, okay, you want to make that bed? You're going to have to sleep in it. If you really want it, I'll give it to you. But I'm telling you, this is how it's going to be. And your decision today is going to have long-lasting consequences that your children are going to suffer for. Oh, under unjust rulers and the yokes of oppression and all of that. So your children end up suffering that. Uh, here's another real-world example. If you are of a particular generation that then votes to, I don't know, elect leaders that want to do lots of spending, and it's great for your time, but then so many years down the road, all of a sudden, your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren can't even afford to buy a loaf of bread because the debt is so high. Is that saying it's your fault? As an individual, not necessarily, but it is saying every action has consequences and that there are long-lasting consequences that affect generations after you. Um, there's a few things then that I want to look at. I'm going to turn to Proverbs 22. He who sows iniquity will reap sorrow and the rod of his anger will fail. He who sows in iniquity will reap sorrow. You reap what you sow. And if you sow poorly, you will reap poorly. The Lord will give you the bed that you ask, and he will let you make it the way that you want to make it. But, the but, the but then, you know, you have to sleep in it too. So that's part of what this is when the children are, suffer the sins of the father. The biggest thing, though, is, I would say, honestly, the best way to think about it is still thinking about it in terms of the community, the nation. Because, and I'll say this, contextually, that is within the context of that verse, when it is given and how it is spoken, it isn't actually at the end of the commandments. So we 
read it that way in the catechism because Luther says, what does the Lord God say about all these commandments? But actually, that whole thing is given after the Lord saying, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt. I am going to be, you shall have no other gods I am, because I'm a jealous God. So the, the deeper reality comes to fidelity, comes to, down to faith in the Lord, fear, fearing, loving, and trusting in God, and realizing that when the fathers start to turn away from the Lord, the children will suffer, and they will not only suffer as a result of their personal blood fathers turning away, but their national fathers, should I say. So you look at the way that the world is going right now, and you can't really say that that, or the United States, rather. You can't say that the United States is what it is right now because of anything that has happened in the last 10 or maybe even 20 years. Things build over time. Where we are now is really a result of things that took place long in the past. But there, there was a concerted effort long in the past to begin cutting God away. The nation turned away from God. They are not now turning away from God. They have turned away from God and are now, we are now witnessing what happens when a nation does turn away from God. That's why I keep telling you to read the book of Judges because guess what? You're in it. And right now, we're at the point where Israel, who should have known better, turned away, and then the entire nation of Israel, fathers, children, their children, their children, all suffer for the sins of the father. Now, here's the last point that I want to make. Does God punish, bring punishment for sins? That is different from me asking, are the children punished, specifically punished, for the specific sin of the Father? Christ took my sin to the cross. <clears throat> okay. Yes. I mean, you're not, you're not wrong. But is there, is there punishment because of sin? Yes. Yes. An example of that is when a nation turns away from God and God gives them over to their own lusts. That's not a blessing. Um, here is a very good example. In fact, I wrote a whole paper on this back at the, when I was working on my STM. There is a discrepancy in the Bible. I love it when people say, there's a discrepancy, there's a contradiction in the Bible. And you say, well, are you part of the church? Do you read the Bible? Do you understand what it means? I mean, I can read the words. You say, okay. <laughs> sure. Um, but there's a discrepancy in the Bible, okay? Where is it? Well, the plagues of Egypt. Think about what the book of Exodus says and then answer this question. Who causes the plagues. God does. God causes the plagues. Who sends locusts? Who sends lice? God. 
Who turns the rivers to blood? God. Except, when you look at the Psalms, it's Psalm 78 or 79, it says, the Lord brought about the plagues in Egypt by sending wicked angels. Who brings about the plagues? Is it God or is it wicked angels? Yeah. There is no discrepancy, and that's the point here. God brings about the plagues by essentially letting the wicked angels have their way with the land. Sort of like Job. Who afflicts Job? Where does the buck stop? God. It's the, it's the military general. You might have one bad egg in your group, but it doesn't matter. You can't put the blame on the bad egg. The blame is yours. The buck stops with you. Anything that happens that is contrary to what should happen is not on the people below you. It is on you. It's the same in the church, by the way. No pastor, or excuse me, no, no layperson is responsible or will have to answer for the things that they do not know or the things that they think incorrectly. Who does answer for that? The pastor. So the Lord is where the buck stops. And he is the one that does it, but he does it through the hands of the wicked angels that he sends. Why does he send them? The Lord sends them. He actually sends them out and says, "Take, do this, go, have your way with the people and with the land. Why does he do it? It is the consequence of sin. Can you say that in the way that you know that I want you to say that? It is the what? for sin. Punishment. That is punishment. When an earthquake or a tsunami or a car accident or anything like that happens, what is that a consequence of? And I said consequence this time on purpose. I'm choosing my words carefully. That is a consequence of sin. And we are tempted to look at the consequences of, of sin, the consequences of living in this sinful world, and to disassociate them from the displeasure of the Lord. But when you read the Bible, what do the people do when things like that happen? What is the first thing that they do? Back to God. Turn back to God. How do they turn back to God? What kind of a prayer do they offer? It, this is, it's very specific. Repentance. Yeah. Don, they don sackcloth and ashes. They heap ashes upon their head and they repent. Oh Lord, forgive us. So there is a very important point to be made. By the way, the plagues are, did the Egyptians commit sins? Who is, who is the person at the heart of 
the wickedness that brings about the plagues. Pharaoh. Do all the Egyptians do the things that Pharaoh does? Do the firstborn of all of Israel or all of Egypt, are they all 100% guilty of chaining up the Israelites and making them work and being cruel to them and not letting them go? Who among them has the power even to let the Israelites go? None of them do. It's the nation then suffering for the sins of its head, of its father. Okay, that, that's the other point. Now, uh, so when stuff happens, we are quick to disassociate, oh, well, that's just sinful world, from the Lord is displeased and is permitting things to happen to chasten us. The Lord still chastens. So th- that is why, what should the Christian response to any kind of disaster, any kind of misfortune, any kind of problem in life, what should your initial reaction to that be? Repentance. What happened on 9-11 or after 9-11? Everybody started getting together and having services of repentance. There were prayers and fasting. Stuff happened. We, we were called to repentance. What happens when Israel is brought to the realization that we are enslaved and this is really bad for us. They don't just turn around and say, oh, just kidding, Lord, we actually do believe in you. No, it was repentance. Oh, Lord, we, we recognize that, that what we have done has been wicked. And I think you, can, you, don't always, you don't always see whether it is a punishment or not, but I think simmering deep down, if it is something that is taking place in the natural world because sin is in the natural world, you should always assume that the chastening of the Lord is at work. Even if you can't say, oh, I stole a package of bubblegum and that's why there was an earthquake in China or whatever, and that was my fault. That's not what to do. The, the, what to do, though, is to recognize that the Lord's, the Lord's chastening is at play to bring you to repentance, to recognize your need for him for his life and for his absolution and for amendment of life, whether you live in China and suffer in that earthquake or not. Yes? Well, it's just making me think of that wonderful little book that I finally finished, The Letters of Brother Lawrence. And Hmm. um, the thing he says is when you're sick or anything happens, thank God for bringing you closer to God. Yes, and that's the other thing too. Uh, because you are physical and or material and spiritual, everything has a, every physical illness has a spiritual component to it. So you never just have a cold. You never just have the stomach flu. There's also a spiritual reality to that too. If you weren't a sinner, you wouldn't have the cold. If you weren't a sinner, you wouldn't have the stomach flu. So the, the two are there together. So even the illnesses that you can take upon yourself are the working of the Lord. Okay, we, We've got to be done now. With this, this is the last Bible class until January 1st, but still come next week for the Sunday School Christmas program. If you're in the choir, we'll just go straight to the sanctuary, and we'll see the rest of you at the altar.